Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week, we're wondering how can organizations counter diversity fatigue? Many companies pay lip service to the idea of diversity, but beyond recruitment quotas and good intentions, how many of them can boast about having a varied and thriving workplace for all employees, regardless of orientation and gender? Take a card, any card, and I want you to treat other people like the race that is on their forehead, okay? That's the American version of The Office, spoofing the diversity workshop. But it's now a corporate staple. She gets it. Now she knows what it's like to be a minority. The arguments in favor of diversity are powerful. Internal surveys at Google have found that diverse teams are often the most innovative, and there's even a mooted correlation between firms with high female participation and profitability, according to one study. But many companies have yet to move beyond the box-ticking stage. It's not good enough to just do well in an index. You have to ask yourself, how do we become better? Before it was a box-ticking exercise. It was something that people thought that they should be doing, and I think now. I don't think it is optional. Recently, the Economist held its second annual multi-city event, Pride and Prejudice, looking at the business case for LGBT inclusion. That's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender. I'm Sandy Minton-Beddoes, editor of the Economist. Welcome to our second Pride and Prejudice conference. This is the start of a 24-hour rolling event. So we started in Hong Kong. We're now here. We're moving on to New York, and the panels today will be moderated by me and several colleagues of mine from the Economist in London. At the London event, I spoke to a number of executives and politicians about their experiences of managing diverse teams and the changes they've witnessed in attitudes towards LGBT and minority employees down the years. First was Claudia Brindwoody, Vice President of Global Intellectual Property Licensing at IBM. So, Claudia, we're dropping in on you again. We spoke to you last year for Economist Radio. Has much changed in this field over the last year? What's moving? Well, it's it's actually pretty scary with the changes in the political environment in in the U.S. in the U.K. and the populist movements in Europe and and elsewhere. We thought we were making more progress than we you know than we are now. We're we're worried about the backlash and we're worried about the steps backwards. That that we may be taking. So, from a corporate perspective, corporations are still moving forward, but it's that whole general social environment that is、uh, cause for concern from last year to this one. There is a danger of over-indexing. I mean, I rather naughtily call it populism <laughs> killed my cat. Right. <laughs> Everything can be blamed on the rise of populism.、Right. It's obviously very different if one's looking at places like East and Central Europe and, and the U.S. What is it that you're specifically worried about? Well,、um, we're seeing a lot of legislation in the U.S. being introduced, the quote-unquote religious freedom bills that allow people to claim it's okay to discriminate based on their religion. You know that they don't want to serve me in their restaurant because they're Christian and I'm gay. Right, Th- those kinds of grassroots, state by state, religious freedom bills are are real, are something that that we have to look at. The、um, bills, like in North Carolina,、uh, that the House Bill Two、uh, with the transgender bathroom issues, they're pretext for fear 
and discrimination and, and really lack of education and lack of understanding. Just tell me a bit more about how you think corporates are doing. We've got a, a lot of people here today, and if anything, I would say it's, there's an acceptance that this is part of what companies and institutions and public sectors should be doing. But they're often a bit confused about what they should be putting first and getting entangled in intersectionality. Are they right? The corporations have a duty to their stakeholders, shareholders, employees, customers, to get things right. And we have to have the courage and the intention to leverage the, the kind of power we have. We've got economic power in our supply chains to make sure our suppliers are providing you know, benefits for LGBT employees or, or other things. We've got convening power where we can pull other corporations together and, and together create enough courage among us to make a difference. And we've got our brand power where we can use our brands for advocacy uh, in places like North Carolina or elsewhere in the world, Poland or Russia, so that we can come together and make a difference. What if I were to ask you to put your company hard hat on and take the experience that we've had today and a lot of the discussions, particularly around the lunchtime session, people are just mingling, and I got a lot of different suggestions about how they should be doing their strategies for promotion to the board level. And by the time everybody had had their favorite cause put up to the top table, if I were a CEO, I'd be pretty worried when I made my next round of appointments that I'm being quite hamstrung. Is that a fair consideration? We look at it differently at IBM because we see that as uh, opportunity, not, not any kind of hamstringing. Uh, we, we do what we measure, and we're able to let our LGBT people self-identify. So now at IBM, we can cross-reference our LGBT population with our top talent, just like we've been doing for women and people of color for many, many years. So we can now see who our top talent, who happen to be LGBT, and we can give them mentors just like we've been doing for women, just like we've been doing for other top talent. So being able to see, being able to have our LGBT folks visible and counted lets us actually do the things that we want to do in terms of advancement of all talent um, and, and helping our LGBT people not feel afraid to be out, to feel like there's some upside and not just all downside in their career. How much has it changed since you were first an out woman in business and particularly in your sector? Um, it's changed dramatically. I, I mean, the, the combination of the social changes, marriage, uh, civil partnership, those kinds of things, with business understanding not only the, the economic benefits, the innovation benefits, the diversity benefits of all kinds, not just LGBT. We've seen women contribute more. We, we have a woman CEO at IBM. All those kinds of diversity aspects make for a, a better, more innovative, more agile uh, corporation. And we, so we're doing better things for our shareholders and for our clients. That sense of change was a common theme among other executives we spoke to. I started off at a law firm called Slaughter May, and I was their first out gay associate, and it was seen as okay. But it was still very much the attitude of don't frighten the horses. Steve Wardlaw, chairman of the insurance company Emerald Life. And I went back to Slaughter May last year because Stonewall was launching a campaign in the partners' dining room, which was seen as the top of the hierarchy. I know the senior partner, and he, you know, and this was a great acknowledgement. He said, 
can you imagine in your day Slaughter May hosting a, you know, LGBT rights organisation in the sanctum, in like the, the partner's dining room? And of course you can't. And so it's just that level of acceptance that's gone so far in just one generation. In his career, Steve has had to manage living and working in two countries where gay people can encounter problems, Saudi Arabia and Russia. But he was able to manage because of the high status he held in his company. I was fortunate enough to be running at the office that we were working. And in both those environments, although culturally being LGBT is not massively acceptable, there is also a very great respect for hierarchy. (laughs) So being number one was quite helpful. But for employees climbing the ranks who may be still in the closet, Steve recognises that there aren't easy solutions. How do they signal that they may not wish to go and work in Riyadh or in Singapore without, of course, the process of outing themselves? And because that's an internal struggle for those, I think most companies still don't have an answer. They tend to think they're two good people. The out LGBT employees and the straight employees. Forgetting that in the straight employees there will be, even some of the partners in my law firm came out after being married to a woman for 10, 15 years, something like that. How do you, there should be an assumption that not everybody who doesn't identify as LGBT is straight. And according to Ian Johnson at the consulting firm Out Now, although Western societies have embraced LGBT causes, you still see less people coming out at work. In some countries, it's particularly pronounced. So in the U.S., on the corporate side, have more LGBT policies that are being effective now than almost any other country. And yet, we are seeing over the last six years a 6% decline in people who feel able to come out to everybody at work in the U.S. That's a problem. And the biggest hindrance, Ian reckons, is a tick-box mentality, pervasive in the corporate world. They are failing to check with the people the policies are designed to help, LGBT people, how is it going for them. In other words, box-ticking doesn't change culture. You can't just be a PR junkie that loves your index score or loves speaking at a conference. You have to go and find out how is it going day to day for the workforce. Policies alone are not enough. What you have to track is activation in your own workforce. You have to discover what's going wrong. Ian says there's one sure way to break up diversity fatigue though. Show them the money. Measure it. Show the difference that it makes. We've discovered that when you move somebody from being out to nobody at work to being out, being out to everybody, in most countries they become 11 to 15% more likely to stay with that current employer. And that has value. For most organisations, that's a multi-million dollar saving in retaining top talent. So do a corporate audit, measure your metrics, don't be frightened to discover the truth, and do it over time. Less than 50% of people under the age of 20 identify as straight. That means that you are now at a point where the majority of people under the age of 20 do not see themselves as straight. Robin Exton is founder of the lesbian and bisexual dating app, Her. I think creating social spaces as well that's not as similar as like LGBT drinks, but again, like you're taking your company to an external event that is for queer people in tech. In a panel session, Robin admitted her Silicon Valley startup skews in a certain direction. What's the one or two things that you're planning to do in the next year to push the agenda forward? Robin. Um, uh, it's hard because our whole company is so gay. I don't know how we can get much gayer. Like, it's, um, I think... Um, uh... 
But later, she told me that there are policies like asking new hires about their preferred gender pronoun that should be adopted by companies, whatever their demographics. Even for people who are LGBT. We take them through onboarding training of what does sexuality mean, what does gender identity mean, what is your gender expression, and so acknowledging it on day one when someone comes into the company shows people how it's something that everyone at this company considers and will all be respectful of. Others, however, are more wary of blanket policies. Steve Wardlaw of Emerald Life again. In countries like some of the European countries and the US, where transgender is now a big topic of discussion, a very hot topic, people will understand the concept of why you're asking because you might be transgender. In other countries, it's you know it's not a clever question. You'll just be met with blank stares. I work in the insurance sector. You know, we talk a lot about the medical questions you might ask someone who's transgender for a travel insurance policy, and that's great when we're talking in our bubble in London, but. You know, it's only two years ago that the big insurance conference in Manchester used to have scantily clad women handing out flyers. I mean, you know, to take people who still think that's a shame that there aren't women in bikinis at the door to start talking about transgender recognition rights, if you do too much too soon, you're just going to overwhelm people and their reaction is usually fairly defensive. Instead, he emphasises flexibility. And lots of policies and procedures and frameworks work well when you look at them on a sheet of A4 in black and white writing. Uh, A friend of mine is an air steward for an airline and last autumn he was diagnosed as HIV positive. This is obviously not a framework, but for him individually, that means they took him off the Middle Eastern flights. The reason being that all cabin crew get their bags searched and any retroviral medication gets taken away and he's there two, three days and you're not supposed to take it. So the way you manage these processes, I think, is to give local management a lot of decision-making as to how they deal with the individual employees. With discrimination, you're never going to guess what the discrimination will be, so having a policy signed off by the board in 2011 is not going to work. A lot of these concerns come down to duty of care, but where do you draw the line? I caught up with one high-flying executive to see what he thought. So Mark Anderson, Executive Vice President, Virgin Atlantic Airways, by definition you're a global company in your operations. How does that affect the approach that you take to the issues that we've discussed today? Well, I think it gives us a huge responsibility both for our customers around the world and also for our colleagues around the world who work in uh, potentially unfriendly LGBT countries uh, to to use our power um, both as a brand to speak out but absolutely increasingly as an economic power. Uh, for example, in the Caribbean, we're the largest uh, airline and holiday company and we have a real responsibility and I believe a real obligation to talk to uh, countries, to talk to Uh, tourist authorities to talk to anybody who will work with us including other organizations to start helping people to understand why LGBT inclusion is so important Uh, you know we've done a lot of work with Open for Business and for every social right or legal right that you give in a country actually you're talking around a $1,400 per capita GDP increase. Tell me about that economics point you actually put a a figure on it $1,400 explain how. Well, that's work we've done with Open for Business. So they've worked with various business schools around the world to actually start pulling together, um, is there economic proof that countries that are LGBT inclusive uh, fare better? And we all know that, uh, you know, for countries to do well, you need thriving cities. In cities where the LGBT community is alive and well, uh, actually those cities do better. You take countries with uh, foreign investment, so take Kenya, for example. Kenya's lack of uh, LGBT inclusion is currently estimated to be costing at around 132% more foreign investment that would be available if they were able to, to dial up this inclusion. 
You work a lot with the Caribbean, it's a very popular flight route for you for holiday makers, and there's not a great record there in a, a lot of countries in the region on equal rights for gays, let alone anything else. What are you doing about that, and how forthright should you be? That's a, that's a really interesting one. So you're working against uh, hundreds of years, in some cases, of cultural, religious, even legal uh, precedent, if you like, uh, and trying to go in as, as you know, a brand as, even as strong as Virgin Atlantic and Virgin Holidays and start telling people how to behave is not the way. Uh, you, have to, you have to do it from a, a persuasive way in terms of working with governments, talking, working with local communities, working with other organizations in the region and you have to make this economic argument i mean you know really do feel very strongly that uh, actually governments listen more to the economics than they do to the morals and what is the balance here as an employer between duty of care for your employees and making sure that they don't end up in difficulties and advocacy because if i were an employee who got into some kind of trouble in a part of the world that's not friendly to lgbt rights i might well say well hang on a minute you you said i should come here you sent me here yeah, so we, so we have a responsibility in terms of our workplace. So where we ask our, our colleagues around the world to work, we make 100% sure that the, the practices in the workplace are exactly the same as the UK. We do that with the help of Stonewall and other organisations to kind of audit whether we're putting our money where our mouth is and whether the rights, if you like, and the, and the, uh, the ways that we work in the UK are being lived uh, abroad. But the other challenge, I guess, is to is to how we influence people while we have employees. So we have a responsibility to employees to help them understand local laws, customs, how to behave, what to do, what not to do. That's very clear. Increasingly, we have that responsibility for our customers as well. But it's also a case of how do you influence change in a way that doesn't alienate countries against your local employees who are, who are working for you. That's also very important. Mark Hansen, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. In the afternoon session, Karen Blackett, chairwoman of the advertising and marketing agency Mediacom UK, spoke to me about the economic advantages of reaching hitherto ignored consumers, especially those in black and minority ethnic groups known in the industry as BAME. One in four kids at primary and secondary school come from a BAME background. Those are future consumers. If you look at the spending power of the BAME audience, in 2001 it was 32 billion, in 2011 it was 300 billion. Karen argues that to reach diverse consumers, you must first have a diverse workplace. It's really important that A, you employ people from a BAME background, and B, you ensure that your advertising is not excluding but is inclusive. I think agencies have to take part of the responsibility for that, so I do think the advertising industry should shoulder some of that responsibility because I don't think as an industry we are as inclusive as we should be. If I think about the ad industry, only 27% of the most senior roles are led by women, and if you look at ethnicity in the industry, it's literally 7% of the industry come from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. So I don't think the, the argument was there because the industry itself wasn't reflective. In terms of minority representation in the upper tiers of management, Steve Wardlaw notes his own industry has a way to go. I'm on a, very kindly been asked to be in a, like a LGBT dining group for out C-suite executives in the insurance sector. That group is 18 people, 
no more in a, you know in an employ um, industry that employs tens of thousands of people. Of that eighteen, I'm going to say fourteen are white men. You know, it's still even when you try and be diverse, you still come back to looking at industry groups that have got a generational change to happen, and that's what we're trying to push. It starts with educating. The, the top leadership. Ricardo Zaccone is chief executive officer at King, the game developer behind the mobile app Candy Crush. Uh, and then from there, basically cascading it down. At the same time, I think that this is a topic which is absolutely strategic and um, key for, for not only for the company, for, but for every person in the company. And that's why it started as a grassroots movement within King. And so I think it's really key to support and have a culture which is open, support grassroots movements and give them really full backing so they can run faster than, than, uh, than they can run otherwise. I genuinely think it comes down to good leadership and a good leader being able to look at what the policy is and then being able to go off-piste and go a la carte to create something for an individual who's important to the business. It's a continual learning journey for everyone on the company, whether you are within the community or outside of the community. We're all learning about each other as individuals. It's just being respectful and considerate to each other. Well, that concludes our Economist Asks Pride and Prejudice special for this week. Do let us know what you think companies can do to improve workplace diversity, what might go wrong, or share your experiences. You can tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag EconPride. Do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>